I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 91, we read The Aristocracy of Talent by Adrian Wooldridge, published in 2021. Adrian Wooldridge is the political editor and columnist for The Economist newspaper. He was educated at Balliol College, Oxford, where he studied modern history and was awarded a fellowship at All Souls College, also at Oxford University. There he received his doctorate of philosophy in 1985. From 1984 to 1985, he was also Harkness Fellow at the University of California, Berkeley. And until July 2009, he was The Economist Magazine's Washington Bureau Chief. All right, so this is a this is our second of our, in our installment of meritocracy. Uh, last time we, we read a meritocracy perspective from the left. This is, at least nominally, a, a meritocracy perspective from the right. Although, as we get into it, I'm not entirely sure that uh, it's completely conservative or anything, but, but it's definitely um, a little bit different of a take. He says, uh, there's one idea that still commands widespread enthusiasm. And that is that an individual's position in society should depend on his or her combination of ability and effort. This is meritocracy. Meritocracy, he says, the closest thing we have today to a universal ideology. A meritocratic society combines four qualities which are each in themselves admirable. First, people can get ahead in life on the basis of their natural talents. Second, meritocracy secures equality of opportunity by providing education for all. Third, it forbids discrimination on the basis of sex and race and other irrelevant characteristics. And finally, it awards jobs through open competition rather than through patronage and nepotism. So his, key, his thesis is that meritocracy is the best idea, although he himself will say it's not a perfect idea, but it's the best we have. So... What exactly is the problem with the meritocratic idea? Because today, it's completely under fire, which we'll uh, talk. We'll discuss. He answers, you know, is it that is the problem that it supports the status quo, which is the left wing consider, uh, criticism that it lifts up uh, white males at the expense of all others, or on the on the right side, there's criticism, is that it uh, keeps everybody in a state of constant anxiety. And pulls people out of their communities and leaves uh, leaves communities without leadership. But the fact is, he'll say for millennia, people inherited their positions in fixed social orders, just like Downton Abbey. Basically, you were born into it. You own the land because you're an aristocrat, because you're the child of a king, because you're the child of an aristocrat, of a duke, of a noble, and the world was ruled by royal dynasties. Plum jobs were bought and sold like furniture. He says nepotism was the way of life. Upward mobility was discouraged and sometimes outlawed, which is a little bit ironic because every single Disney movie is about uh, some some lowly peasant who becomes yeah. princess, right? But back yeah, then, in all honesty, wouldn't have, wouldn't have been possible. 
So anyway, in final, in, uh, to, to kick the book off, he says, the rise of mer meritocracy entailed a comprehensive revolution in the way people think about the world. And he, he starts the book with several chapters about the history of uh, where, where the world started and how it moved in a direction of, of meritocracy. Right. He calls, he calls it an idea that's central to modernity. And I think, I, I think uh, our previous author, uh, Michael Sandel, what we read last week would, would agree with that. Although I, I think, and he mentions uh, Sandel's work along with others who critique uh, meritocracy from the left. But I think where Wooldridge maybe gets at the, gets, has a better angle at, at the question itself is he says, is there a better system for organizing the world? The relevant question is surely not whether meritocracy has its faults. It's whether it has fewer faults than the alternative systems. And that's what I think we, we didn't get in those left-wing critiques of meritocracy that we read mm -hmm. in last episode. There was a lot of the fault. And, and, you know, as we go through this book, he, he points out a lot of those faults and admits that they're true. He admits that, you know, he talks about how the new aristocracy that's sort of arisen uh, is finding a way to make all these meritocratic qualifications happen to, you know, inure to their descendants and their friends and their, you know, people like them, you know, in the same, you know, it's in the same way that old time aristocrats did, except now it's, well, you know, we'll get so-and-so into the best schools and he's going to have the SAT preps and he's going to have the extracurriculars and all these things so that, you know, it dresses up what is essentially inherited privilege, uh, makes them think he worked for it. Wooldridge admits this is what is happening in a lot of places, but where, but I think he, he takes it a step farther and says, what's better, you know, is it the old system? Cause that, you know, if there's, if there's corruption in meritocracy now, it, there was, it was just pure corruption in the old days. There was, mm -hmm. like you were saying, you just inherited what you had. That was it. There was no moving up like, like those Disney movies. I mean, in, in most of Europe, if a prince married a commoner, their, their children would be disinherited. There, there was no fairy tale there, you know. That's 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 the way it was, and that's the way it was among the other classes too. You know, you you couldn't shake that social order. There were occasional people who could find a way, but it was extremely rare. It was the stuff of fairy tales. And then you know, it was, Sandel got into uh, John Rawls and all these ideas of the government sort of playing the the part of the arbiter of merit and making it fairer, making you know, making a, a liberal system that presumes nobody has a right to anything we all should you know tax the rich support the poor you know tax the winners to support the losers in the meritocratic sense of the word and i th i think woldridge um sees that and you know it, it's telling that he's a he writes for the economist because the economist is maybe left-wing socially but they're not really big on big government either they're they're a weird sort of it's a good magazine, but they, they've got their own point of view, and it, it, this guy fits it um, in that he, there's gratuitous insults to Trump throughout the book that I didn't think really fit the thesis. Yeah. But, you know, he puts it in there like Trump was especially nepotistic. I was, well, I don't know if that's true. I mean, John Kennedy had his brother in the cabinet. <laughs> you know, I mean, there was, right. they, they all do it. Um, but the point is, he, he, um, he sees meritocracy in the same way that like Winston Churchill said democracy was the worst system other than all the other systems, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, meritocracy is, is, it's not perfect. He says, but it does, he says it does a better job than the alternatives at reconciling 
various goods that are inevitably in tension with each other, social justice, economic efficiency, individual aspiration, and limited opportunities. So he spends several chapters going through kind of the history of how the world selected people for various uh, high profile and you know wealthy positions. And it's essentially what we've talked about many times before, aristocracy, nepotism, so forth. And he, he brings us up to about the you know, the First World War era, more or less, where Harvard and other private colleges uh, introduced the SATs for all applicants. And the president of Harvard, this guy Conant, says the guiding, said at the time, the guiding educational philosophy was that great private universities like his own had a duty to fulfill Jefferson's vision. That is, he would say, to call from every condition of our people the natural aristocracy of talents and virtue and prepare it by education at the public expense for public concerns. Obviously, Alexander Hamilton was also in this camp. Uh, Jefferson actually was, I think, more in the, in the camp of, of traditional aristocracy where Hamilton was more, he himself being uh, a, a bastard son who made his way to the very top, uh, was much more in, in favor of natural aristocracy. That means you know your own talent or intellect. But uh, this, this Harvard president, was kind of a, a trailblazer in it. Um, the author here says, Conant had nothing but contempt for the popular idea that human beings are all basically equal. Only in matters connected with organized sport does the average American clear, think clearly about the significance of innate ability, he wrote. Yet when it comes to studies, parents often expect the school and college to accomplish the equivalent of turning a cripple into a football player. I mean, this is something that, I, that I, I, I've said in not... In not too many words many times before that why why is it so difficult when we can see there's height differentials Mm -hmm. there's just beauty differentials there's athletic ability you know there's every kind of ability but uh but intelligence is equally distributed i mean it doesn't make any sense it doesn't even um you know pass the sniff test but it was a big step forward for for harvard and others to introduce the sat's so as part of this history, he says this uh, World War II turbocharged the meritocratic revolution with mass mobilization, demonstrated how much talent had been wasted in the past. You had this this test, which is essentially an IQ test. I mean, the SAT test is essentially an IQ test as well, but um, you know it's, it's a variation of one. But then the Army created one called this Army General Classification Test, which was administered to uh, 10 million recruits during World War II. He says, uh, revealed a lake of untapped ability in the population at large. 49% of the population had the brains to complete 14 years of schooling. That would be like high school plus uh, a couple years of junior college. And 32% had the brains to complete college. At least that's what they, that was their you know judgment from these tests. But it was for the first time they're like, you know, motivated to um, separate the folks into, you know, different uh, it's kind of the division of labor for war. We need we need folks to handle different jobs, and and so they started really getting serious about about these tests. Where even at that time, though, um, conservatives, he says, uh, fought these intelligent test tests. These these days, it's liberals, and we'll get to that. But but at that mm-hmm. time, there was a lot of conservatives pushing back against it um, on the grounds he says that they weren't as good at spotting academic merit as traditional examinations. Which I guess is, you know, that would be more like uh, the uh, 
I guess, traditionalist view of, of conservatism, kind of like uh, baseball scouting as it's, as it was, has always been practiced versus uh, saber metrics or, mm -hmm. you know, analytics. Uh, like that's not the way that we we've done it before. Like we've, we've always been able to identify the talent, like through our own ways, but of course their own ways was their, own, their waspy friends, kids going to their, you know, waspy uh, schools like Harvard and Princeton and so forth. Sure. Yeah. They'd look at, you know, they used to look at the well-rounded young man and that sort of thing in the same way that a baseball scout would say, well, you know, it doesn't pass the eyeball test. You know, he's got, you yeah. know, this sure his exit velocity is this and that, but look at the way Look at the way he inside outs the ball. You can't, you can't teach that, you know, it's just, but you're right. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, a point of view that's constrained by where it's viewed from. And if everybody's viewing it from the same area, it's natural to say, well, look, we're on top. This is what we think is the ideal person. Obviously, since we're on top, we know what we're talking about. So let's, you know, keep that going. I, I, I thought it was interesting. Wilder tried to 18 years after Connor had taken over, harvard uh they were still admitting 94 percent of legacies hmm, yeah. so he made some changes but it, it was a deeply entrenched system uh, he mentions at some point in this book something i'd read before and i always think it's hilarious um that the harvard that president or future president john adams attended uh they had class rank like your modern schools do but they listed you in terms of social status hmm. like that so he, he ranked like the middle of his class, but the rank had nothing to do with grades. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. It's like, why even have it? <laughs> you know, everybody already knows who's, who's on top in society. But <clears throat> what I thought was interesting, and, and this, they mentioned this in, in the uh, Sandel book too, I think that they both kind of overlooked the fact that men like Conant were getting into meritocracy at a time when America was assuming its sort of current major role on the world mm -hmm. stage. You, know, you said how they thought talent was being wasted. Well, I think I think the 19th century America really didn't care if talent was being wasted. You know, like they, you know, the people in government would prefer you made something out of yourself. But if you didn't, well, that's your problem, isn't it? You know, if you wanted to live out in the woods by yourself and not contribute to society, that's okay. You know, just go do it. But as we're becoming an industrialized nation in the 20s late 19th and early 20th century as we're flexing our military muscles in the first world war utilizing the nation's talent now becomes a matter of national security and matter mm -hmm. of diplomacy and and just you know our weight on the world stage if all the other countries are getting more meritocratic well we had to do even better because we didn't want it you know if if there's somebody who can help this country we've got to find that man and you know eventually we included women in that, but you know, at first it was just about, we got to find these bright young men, these new leaders. We've got to bring them out of whatever, uh, backwater towns they're in and, and bring them to the capital, bring them to New York, bring them to, you know, the, the, the centers of this country. And it was really a very nationalistic project. And I, it's like how we got really into STEM stuff, uh, in the fifties because the Soviets put Sputnik up there and we freaked out because, you know, Oh, the backward Russia, you know, they're, they're communists. They can't compete with us. We had the bomb first. We had all this. For, and then all of a sudden they've got something in space. And we're mm -hmm. like, whoa, we didn't know they could do that. It started the whole thing. So I, th I think that's part of it. And he, he quotes uh, Teddy Roosevelt talking to a, a graduating class at Groton. Uh, he said, Teddy Roosevelt summed up the new ethic of responsibility. 
when he told Groton students, much has been given to you, therefore we have a right to expect much from you. I think that's a, an interesting summation of the, the new spirit, the sort of industrialized, militarized America of, of saying, we're, we all need to pull together to make this country great. It's, a, it's something that wasn't around in a more laissez-faire America. Um, but it, it also kind of encapsulates the old idea of privilege. Like now when, when you get people talking about privilege and some of them are the same ones who are criticizing meritocracy as a concept, they want to destroy systems. You know, that's the postmodern mm-hmm. thing. Break it down, break the power structures. The old way, they knew they were privileged. I mean, that's these kids at, at schools like Groton and Andover and all these, you know, private schools in New England and whatnot, they they yeah, they knew they were on top. They they weren't blind to the idea. But the message coming down from on high from men like Roosevelt was, yeah, you have privilege. You, we So we expect you to use it to benefit the whole community and ultimately the whole nation. Mm-hmm. It's that very different view. He, wa- he wanted to use it to build up and in the process to help all people. You know, to, you know, that's And that's maybe that's part of the, the humility question that we discussed last episode about how if you were on top in a non-meritocratic system, you might be expected to be a little humble because you know you didn't earn it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas if you if you get it, and it's supposedly through a, you know, judgment free, blind graded, you know, purely uh, technocratic judgment of status, well then what do you owe anybody, right? You know, I made it on top, so can you. If you don't, well the hell with you. I mean that's not my fault. It's it's easy to fall in, and I, I I think I'll say it again. I don't mean to repeat too much of last episode, but uh, I think we. I think I've seen that on the left and I've seen it on the right too. It's just that there's a certain attitude of I got out. So can you. Right. Right. So I, I think that, uh, noblesse oblige that you're describing at the time, the sense of where much is given, much is required or much is expected of you by our society and so forth. It's, I think became a little bit more associated with, with the right, with, you know, Republicans, the waspy Republicans. And so, this meritocratic revolution that was kind of being pushed was actually largely driven by the left at the time where you had left-wing political parties wanted to open up opportunities for the working class and left-wing intellectuals wanted to introduce a scientific method for allocating positions. This is particularly for women and by feminists who wanted to extend opportunities to girls. And, and uh, he, he makes it clear that probably the biggest winner of uh, the meritocratic view of the world or approach to the world was really women in that um, he says the decline in manufacturing and the rise of knowledge and service economies leveled the gender playing field or even tilted it towards women. Household appliances such as vacuum cleaners, washing machines, and the rest reduced the amount of time women had to spend on housework. And of course, uh, improved contraception also uh, helped them decide their own fertility Elite colleges, universities began admitting women in the 1970s in, in large measure. Expansion of higher education boosted women's jobs prospects, even more than men's. And we've said this before, that uh, in, in a knowledge economy, you don't have to have a strong back. You don't need to be strong. It doesn't really matter how strong you are in order to be an engineer or to do, to do math or to be uh, in the service industries by and large. But uh, a point that he makes that I think is really worth saying here is that this change essentially the gains for women was welcomed by men 
as well as women. <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. that's that's not the narrative we normally hear when we're talking about the the kind of the uh, the, the left wing um, rewrite of history. Uh, but it actually makes a lot of sense to me because, of course, men are like, yeah, we could use a little extra money around here. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it says uh, revolutionary social change has seldom taken such a benign form. And uh, when you think of so, so many of the culture, intractable cultural uh, problems in America, and I think you could point to the change in public attitudes about uh, gay and lesbian people, I think is, and uh, I think, think the change in attitudes, especially on the left, but even very much so on the right as well, uh, changed pretty quickly in, in 20 years or so. And you could see the same thing happening for women you know, at this, during this stage. And it was, it was kind of the merit, meritocratic ideal that pushed it forward because instead of saying, well, that's not, that's not a woman's role and, you know, politics, that's, um, that's getting your hands dirty in a way that's inappropriate for, for women. Instead of saying like, all right, you can take this test as well as I, you know, as well as the next guy, then you deserve to be up there as well. And, um, so, it, uh, it created new opportunities for people. And I think it's worth uh, just reiterating that, you know, when it, it was, it was the, the left side of the spectrum that was really pushing this, it was, it was the conservatives that were pushing back against it at the time. And, uh, and, and my, how things have changed the, he says from uh, the left gradually turned against its intellectual offspring, the anti meritocratic revolution came in three waves. First, Academics question the idea that you can measure merit with any precision. Second, public intellectuals question the idea that meritocracy is worth having at all. And third, progressives embrace the alternative values of equity and community, I think is where we're at right now. But this idea that he, he says that uh, the, first, the first wave of criticism that academics questioned that whether you can even measure merit with any precision. I mean, to me, that, that is just such a red herring and just a, a distraction. I mean, even if you would, even if you grant that, say, an IQ test isn't exactly accurate in some universal sense, it's it's patently obvious to anyone who's who has their eyes open at all that intelligence, talent, athletic ability is. I mean, it's just it's not equally distributed. Some 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 kids in school really struggle with stuff that other kids just don't find hard at all. And, uh, and there's something to be measured there, whether, whether we can measure it extremely precisely or not. To me, what fr what's frustrating about this is it, it, it does come from the academy. It does come from like the Michael Sandels of the world, professors at Harvard who are, who are basically saying like, well, you, I'm not even sure that, that intelligence is something that can be measured. And you're kind of like, okay, well, that's, that's great coming from you who kind of won the, the you know, won the intellectual lottery. Like, <laughs> You're pretty smart and got ahead and now you're going to turn around and say there's no such thing as smart so that how did you get ahead then exactly you know you just you were privileged you were lucky not really you the way you were privileged is you were smarter than everyone else uh you know in in a certain class and you know did pretty well and did well on your tests and moved ahead and moved to the next level and that's what college is all about actually is is uh professors who basically like this is how they got ahead and so they're going to repeat, uh, you know, like, uh, put the kids through the same gauntlet that they had to go through 
of uh, you know intellectual tests and so forth to see if they they uh, meet the meet the same standards. So. Yeah, that whole thing it, it just doesn't. It, it sounds weird to say who can measure intelligence, who knows who's smart, and also buy my book. Yeah, <laughs> like, I why, why not buy a book off the guy I'm sitting next to on the subway? Then you know, I mean, if, if we're all the same and it's all yeah. not, but that's that's the same kind of thing that he gets at earlier in the book too. Is it? It might. Yeah, IQ tests aren't perfect. I mean, I'm 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 sure that in 50 years we'll have noticed some flaw in the kind of test we're using now, and we'll look back on this period and say, oh, how could they have missed that? It's very obvious, you know. But but I think we're getting closer to something and. You know the idea that if it if some if a test works most of the time it's better than no test at all. That's that's what's crazy about it is to say, well, I'll just throw the whole thing out. Well then, well then what? I mean, then then is it just? And what what's even weirder is that they think this will help underprivileged groups. I mean, if you have no objective tests, why wouldn't the people in charge just help the people they like? Right. Yeah. At least now, if you've got SATs and you want, you know, your friend's kid to get into your school and he's just can't cut it, there's no way around that. I mean, there's ways around it, as we saw in the USC bribery scandal and, the, you know, all yeah. the stuff with uh, what's her name from Full House. But, like, it, you know, th- there's ways around it, but they're not. I mean, she went to jail for that. So the the fact is, I mean, the fact that we have these tests imperfect though they may be it's better than a system of pure power and i guess that gets back to the postmodern idea that there are no principles only power structures you know if you if you really believe that then i guess you'd want to tear things down but i still don't see why you think it would benefit anybody but those who already are on top well so he quotes he quotes imbram kendi you know the uh that how to be an anti-racist author and and you know race uh leading race, intellectual, so forth, whatever. He says, races are fundamentally power identities and meritocracy is nothing more than an illusion designed to perpetuate white power. So in, in the, the struggle, in the, the, the great game of uh, power struggle, Kendi says, the use of standardized tests to measure aptitude and intelligence is one of the most effective racist policies ever devised to degrade black minds and legally exclude black bodies. He did. Um, I, I as he went through uh, the attacks on meritocracy, I did find it interesting that they first came from the same group of people that started meritocracy. That is from the left. And this book focuses more on England than the previous one. And I thought it was interesting to see how Michael Young, who invented the term meritocracy, is sort of a dystopian idea um talked about how uh, this was back in the 50s he was writing that meritocracy sort of is a a trap for keeping the working class down by depriving them of all their natural leaders and i i don't think it's meant to be that way because i I think that's also sort of a a class-based way of thinking of things you know i mean like what claim does a town have on a person to say, no, you, you're our natural leader. You can't leave. You've got to stay here and lead us. Right. You know right. I mean? Your dad was a coal miner, so you've got to be a leader in the miners union. You can't go off to right. London and, you know, be a banker or whatever, but it does have that effect in a way. I mean, it, and we see it in this country and we, you know, we've talked about that with numerous books we've read 
over the years about just the sort the sort of brain drain. And in the global sense, I mean, America is draining a lot of the brains of the world. You know, I mean, how many how many doctors have come here from Asia? How many engineers? Mm. You know, I mean, we always have. I mean, since we got started, we've been a place where people could come if they didn't like their lot in life in wherever they were living at the time. So it, it has that effect. I don't think that's a trap of meritocracy, though. I think that's just that this country is pretty great and people want to come here. And the reason it is great is because we're meritocratic. So it, it kind of comes back on itself. I, I, I think there's, there's a temptation to, uh, to look at it as a conspiracy, you know, but as I think, as I think young does, at least in the way that, uh, Wooldridge describes his work here again, what's the alternative? The alternative is to say that, that that young bright mind from the mining town in the North of England has to, stay there and you know maybe he'll be a leader among his town or among his profession but he might be smarter and harder working and more capable than his boss but he can never rise up to it right i mean i i I just don't see what the alternative is i mean i I wish there was ways there were ways to encourage people to maybe not necessarily all go to london and and manhattan you know maybe bloom where you're planted as some of the a certain kind of conservatives have been known to say I, I i don't know i mean it's but but if you can't if you do it by force then really you're just imposing a new kind of aristocracy and a new kind of coercive system that's yeah. no different than like in china how you're not supposed to move from town to town without the government's permission yeah and people people do and but if they they're basically like illegal immigrants in their own country if they ever get caught doing anything they get sent back to the countryside in to live in rural poverty instead of you know slightly less poor life in the city and that that would that sort of system would be what we had to have if we were not to allow meritocracy to allow individuals to rise and move around as they see fit yeah it's such a tricky problem because you can recognize the, what the problem is i remember i had a friend who lived in a small town basically in the middle of nowhere in the West and her dad went to, uh, left the town, went to, uh, the university of Chicago law school, and then came back to practice law in this t- tiny town. And you're kind of like, what law could you even practice in such a tiny town? But, uh, you know, ultimately became the mayor and I think was in the state legislature and stuff like that and became, you know, a, a the pillar of, of the community. And I, I remember thinking, I've always thought of that as admirable and pretty cool, mm-hmm. but, it's got to be something that you want to do and not something that you're compelled to do. But, uh, you mentioned China and he has a good, a really interesting conversation about China. Uh, he leads into it with, uh, with a description of Singapore, which he calls Singapore is the closest thing the world has produced to a true meritocracy. Uh, and over there, junior ministers, this is like government officials and permanent secretaries can earn $1.6 million a year. And the prime minister earns $3.1 million a year. <laughs> hmm. uh, compare that to, you know, I, I, you know, a senator makes $172,000, which a lot of people are like, wow, that's quite a bit. But yeah. and it, it is and it isn't. But uh, because a lot of these guys would have, you know, other opportunities to make much more. And, of course, they've got to pay for two houses. And I'm not, I'm not being an apologist, but certainly not uh, $1.6 or $3.1 million per year. <laughs> He says the idea that, uh, quote, all men are created equal and capable of equal contribution to the common good 
is viewed in Singapore as the most dangerous illusion. <laughs> so you take a, a primary school exam, which will determine which secondary school you go to, and then later which stream you enter, which is you know crucial to what opportunities will lie ahead for you. A secondary school exam determines which uh, college you can go to. And there's really something to be said because they are probably the most efficient, you know, government maybe in the history of the world. But he says that with the upsides, there are some downsides uh, in Singapore. Pro he calls it problem with calcification. You have the same family names crop up in lists of top scholarship winners and office holders. Now here, the critics of meritocracy would say, well, that just goes to show you they have the money to study for the tests and, and have the inside track. And I'm sure that is the case with some, but I think it's also time that we recognize that when smart, really smart people marry each other, it's a good chance their kids are going to be pretty smart too. And so it's, it's not only the case that, uh, you know, the top 1% of, of household income, there's uh, more represented at Harvard than the, the, the bottom 60%. And, I think that's usually attributed to the to uh, to the privilege of test taking and and money and stuff like that. And certainly that is an element for for many. But it's also the case that like intelligent people end up making more money, and then they usually marry someone who's intelligent, and then very often have intelligent kids. And so mm -hmm. it just uh, it just perpetuates the system, just like. You know what? What are your chances of uh, your chances of being an NFL quarterback are a lot better being Archie Manny's son <laughs> than my dad's son. <laughs> you know, <Yep. laughs> it just it's just it's the case. But that being said, I'm sure there's some you know there's some nepotism happening in Singapore. But he said another problem is uh, arrogance. He says some civil servants behave like they have a mandate from the emperor. That's that's really what Sandel finds the most distasteful about meritocracy is is people feel like they they earned it and they owed it and they're better than. And I, I totally agree that that is a problem. And, and I'll, and I'll, and I think Sandel is right that, that there is a big element of merit, you know, your intelligence is not something that you earned. It's not something that you, you know, dug up in the ground. It's something you were given, you know, as a gift from God or the universe or however you want to look at it. Absolutely. And I, th I think it's, it's a natural product of a, a system that, where, I mean, we live in the knowledge economy, and I think through all of human history, having a good brain was a good way to make money. But now it's especially true, just because fewer jobs involve any sort of physical strength or coordination or any of that stuff. So, yeah, there's going to be assortative mating, like you were talking about. People are going to meet in college or meet in a workplace that's all full of people like them. And I guess, I mean, if if the only, if the only uh, way to make money in our society was to play basketball, we would be ruled by tall people. Yeah, and they would marry each other, and they'd have <laughs> tall kids, and and you would see right away. Oh, look at that guy! He must be a big shot. You know, he's six six. You know, and you would you would know. Um, it's the same thing with brains. You just can't see it, but it's there's going to be that nepotism always because I mean, like we talked about the one of the original arguments of meritocracy was in Plato's Republic, and Plato recognized that people are going to look out for their kids, always have. Even in his time, that was an ancient idea, that you want your own family to do well. So he proposed that all children be reared, you know, in a sort of communal 
I don't know, like an orphanage. Um, not, you know, no parent involvement, all raised by professionals. No society's ever tried this because it's too weird. <laughs> and nobody would like it. You know, everybody likes to have their own kids, or most people do. <laughs> Some days, I wonder. But no, uh, you know, we like to have our own kids around. We like to look out for our own families. That's a, that's a part of human nature. And that's never going to be gotten rid of. But again, I think it's in a system based on merit, I think we have less of that than we're going to have under any other possible system. Mm -hmm. I think the only way meritocracy really fails is when it's compared against an impossible ideal. Uh, you know, something like Plato's Republic or any other sort of, or like Brave New World, which, I mean, that that was a dystopia novel. But if you you could see in, in the, the way it was written, they were aiming at that sort of thing. So it, it's... It's uh, not an ideal, and it's sometimes the way Woldridge writes, it feels like the way communists write about communism, about how, you know, if where it fails, they just say you did it wrong. Right. <laughs> but uh, I haven't seen anybody come up with a better way. Um, only, it's sort of like like an argument for, you know, liberal democracy, and, you know, we, we the people who criticize the way this country's history has gone, they look look to our past and say, all oh, these inequalities and these oppressions. And I think the answer is, it's because we weren't applying our own principles universally and thoroughly. Mm. And I think that's what, kind of what Woldridge is saying here, is that meritocracy is good. The problem is we're not doing it hard enough. And, you know, he talks about the private schools in Britain, which they call public schools. It's confusing. But he says they, they, they've got like three, four percent scholarship students in these in these top schools and that's not enough you know they're really just incubators for the rich I, I think american private schools are a lot better at that sort of thing um they tend to offer a lot more scholarships than that but there still has that element of you know he, he says it should be 50 percent. i don't i don't think the people at eaton are ever going to let in 50 percent regular people but it's it would be a step in the right direction to maybe include a few more things like that i think are sort of Woldridge's suggestions for maybe aligning us from just talking about meritocracy to doing it a little more thoroughly and actually looking to uplift people who have these talents, but are not in high society. Mm -hmm. He also has a warning though, because when he talks about China, he's, he, he, he will say that it's what, what they have there isn't necessarily a pure meritocracy. It's not like Singapore. But they are using, he says, China is using the meritocratic idea to drive a remarkable period of growth. They, they also keep a watchful eye on citizens. They, they, children have to compete to get into the best nursery schools. And it sounds pretty insane, actually, the, the pressure that is put on, on kids. But you got to get into the best nursery schools so you can get into the best secondary schools, so you can get into the best universities. We certainly have that in America as well. But the university you get into determines what job you can get and the salary you can command there, which, you know, it's, is the case here, but it's different in that um, there really is a pipeline there. And uh, he says China's elite universities are doing a better job of recruiting the children of blue collar workers than America's elite universities. They're, they, they are being more meritocratic in the sense of like really trying to find like the smartest, the smartest kids and moving them up. Um, he says, Asia is continuing to focus intently on the two components of Michael Young's formula for merit, IQ plus effort. So it's not just mm -hmm. you get to be smart. And so therefore, 
you know, live the, the life of, of luxury as if you were like a professional athlete or something, you, you got to continue to hustle and work, work hard. Of course, professional athletes work hard as well too, but, um, and, uh, and, and he makes the point that in America, people are skeptical of both. You know, he, we don't have to dive into this because we're late here, but, uh, just like Sandel, he, he mentions John Rawls, Rawls, who said, um, that I basically our intelligence is, is not something we've earned. I think some, that is, I think people can more or less uh, come to an agreement on that where Rawls goes a step further is he says that your effort and your willingness to work hard, that also is a gift from God or gift from the universe that you did not earn. And so you should not be able to, to uh, make gains from it either, which I, I just think there's yeah. very, you're, you're going to get very few takers on that. Like, yeah, yeah. I'll know about that one. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that one I think um, is just more than a step too far, but um, the point being he's trying to make here, and this, this will be my final thought. I'll toss it to you. But um, here, here in America, we are going in a completely opposite direction. We are tearing down our, uh, our specialty schools, our, magnet schools, you know, in, in Northern Virginia, we're saying that, uh, Thomas Jefferson high school and in New York, uh, Stuyvesant high school can no longer be judged. It's not, it's no longer an entrance exam. Instead, it's all these other fluffy factors, which is essential, which, which amounts to whatever the school board finds, uh, you know, politically like expedient at the time. And, uh, it doesn't, I don't believe that that's good for the students of their school district. And I certainly don't think it's you know, good for America and China is just kind of look, looking at that and winking and laughing like, okay, great. Then we'll go ahead and vacuum up all our, you know, brightest and best. And when it comes to um, academics and you can go ahead and, and, uh, uh, stymie those who, who are sitting in classes and, you know, need something more demanding in order, in order to really stimulate them and, and create new opportunities, you know, to create the next, uh, uh, Tesla or Google or whatever. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think, I think it gives us the sense of plateauing and even, even falling behind. And just the thought of that, the thought of destroying these structures we had built up to develop talented people from every social class, it, it it feels it reminded me of uh, Ross Douthat's book about about uh, decadence. It's just we're sort of at the top, and now we're instead of thinking about serious things like when they were like when uh, Condens was at Harvard trying to develop the future leadership class for a country that was rising and and strengthening. We're you know making all of these grad school nonsense concerns you know about intersectionality and you know is it fair if people work harder and get ahead and like you said china's racing to catch up with us and just like everything everything else where we're fixating on stupid cultural fights that should be best left in the academy and meanwhile they're they're building new missiles and they're building new factories to make all the junk we buy and it's a uh, it's it's we'll eventually have to take notice of this i i think or else we're just gonna become like europe a sort of museum to the past you know a place there where there's some cool old buildings but nobody nobody makes anything anymore nobody 
looks at it for leadership anymore. Mm-hmm. And merit- meritocracy is what, what got us where we are. And I think by forgetting it, we risk just falling back into the sort of corruption of the old world. Mm-hmm. All right. Good last word. That's it for Wooldridge. Catch us next time.